Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, and we're back. I'm an author, psychologist, and speaker. Every week, we talk about how to love ourselves, others, and a higher nature, how to improve our finances, career, health, relationships, and spirituality. And we have a very interesting and fascinating guest today, Anthony David Vernon, who is a Cuban-American literary writer who earned his master's degree in philosophy at the University of New Mexico. He's a regularly published author of poetry along with short stories and philosophical articles in various outlets. He was a Pushcart Prize nominee for Guilt is a Pleasure, and his premier book is The Assumption of Death, and he has a hybrid of work of poetry, short stories, philosophical musings, and his second book is entitled Flings on Flings. Welcome to the show, uh, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. uh, great to be on and you know, yes. talk with someone who's uh, done a lot of psychological work, because it's an interest of mine, but not something I'm formally studied in, but... Hope I yes. can contribute to the conversation. Uh, yeah, you have a very fascinating take on these things. And you're Cuban-American. Uh, it's kind of similar to my background. But no hablo español ni un poquito, no? You know, I speak enough to not, uh, as I like to joke, not die in a Spanish-speaking country, but oh, okay. not enough there to have go. a good conversation. Yeah. And so. go to the bathroom if you need to, so you're okay with <laughs> I can get a hotel, and I can get out of there. So that's okay. uh, <laughs> Got it. That's good. Now, your book, uh, Flings on Flings, is very interesting. It's kind of an un, un, uh, unusual or different take on, on love. Mm -hmm. And you talk about a fling. You say, what is a fling? And you say it is basically in the middle ground where love resides. Yes. Now, a lot of people think of fling as a short sexual encounter with hot feelings. So how do you define mm -hmm. fling for us? So I kind of contrast it first and foremost to something I call seduction. So seduction is the place where you would put a one-night stand where you have no interest in the individual aside from using them as an object. Mm -hmm. A fling is longer than that, where you are taking some interest in the person, you get to know them, and you get to understand them, but it doesn't have a permanence to it. So I think that this is where love resides in a passion. I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not a person who believes passion could be just something that happens in a snap. You know, there has to be some time to be truly passionate about something, right? Like a good example of this would be in hiking, that a passionate hiker, you know, they don't just get up the mountain in one minute, you know, they take time to stop, they look around, you know, those who truly enjoy it. So I think the fling is in that middle point of just like kind of the quick, you know, one night stand, whatever, you're an object, but not the, you know, sort of forever, happily ever after. I think if you're going to have that, you would need compassion. Interesting. So, you know, there are many definitions of love, and we'll get into all the different kinds, erotic, ludic, uh, companionate, and so forth. And you have a lot of interesting philosophical background in the Greeks and others. Mm -hmm. Now, the term fling, again, uh, you, you classify it as a short, shorter-term relationship. It could involve feelings, perhaps, you're saying, mm -hmm. uh, but not like a long-term marriage or long-term kind of thing. Uh, now, is your idea that we should have a society of flings and not marriages? Yes, I think we should have a society of flings. However, I do think that you can have flings within marriages. This might sound very strange, but I do think it's, while highly difficult, I think it is still possible to have flings within marriages. Because ultimately, I think the idea is to keep up a level of passion going on there, right? And I think You're saying flings this, within your, your spouse or flings outside of the marriage, like extramarital affairs. Oh, I mean, either or. I, I think it just depends on what the individual wants for themselves. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, pro or anti uh, monogamy. I am not pro or anti polyamory, mm -hmm. et cetera, whatever, you know, relations work uh, between right. individuals as long as they're all consensual. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, it's more important about the feeling of passion. I think mm -hmm. um, this often gets lost in the happy ever after, right? That like, 
there's this settlement and that's where these relationships begin to die. Um, you know, where you're no longer really able to engage with someone like you used to, right? And I think it is possible to keep this sort of honeymoon phase going on for a very, very long period of time. But of course, that takes challenge and work. But I think people should be willing to put in that sort of uh, work. Anthony, you're a fairly young man. Have you been in a relationship yourself, a long term or short term? Um, for me personally, I don't mind exposing this sort of stuff. My relationships are very, uh, admittedly short, right? Okay. So I don't end up, I'm not the type of individual who goes out and, you know, hooks up, even though I'm from Miami and been in that club scene and whatever, right. for the most part, I do have, um, you know, uh, short, but passionate, uh, relationships. And I'm currently, you know, in one right now that I'm very happy with. And I'm not the type of person who's against, um, you know, people doing uh, long-term uh, things for themselves, not even for myself necessarily. I just think the approach in how it should be done um, is not the way it is being done. Uh, I think the way we currently do it is very, you know, cold, methodical, mm. contractual, and doesn't leave a lot of space for uh, the passions, which are the reasons we should be engaging in relationships in the first place. Interesting. Because, you know, there are the arranged marriages that, appear to be successful in certain cultures, uh, religious uh, people who support it. And then we have um, American society is more based on romance and passion. So there's an yeah. international aspect to it. Now, you do say something interesting. You say romance doesn't require love. It can be heartless. And you, mm -hmm. I think you're talking about, is that seduction where you can be a, the cultural player, they can kind of, the ludic, yes. thinks of love as a game, and they can get, uh, you know, successes from that. Yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the, uh, um, it's the Don Juan of, uh, of, you know, that's what romance is. It's that whole sort of, you know, the going about the rituals that people desire, or if we want to put it in more modern terms, the rizzing, you know, like how to properly, you know, go about these sorts of things. Now, you could be genuinely romantic and you can be someone who actually likes these things and wants to do these things. But if we're talking, you know, away from the psychology of it, romance is just simply the series of actions in a given society for the ends of courtship. Hmm, interesting. Now, there's also an interesting gender component because some people might say, well, males have a certain viewpoint, the seduction aspect, women are more long-term, emotional, and so forth. So I teach psychology at the colleges, and I always have this little quiz I give the uh, students. And if you get all three of these right, which they really do, I give you 15 credit points. Okay. So I'm going to give you 15 credit points. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll ask you these questions. Okay. I want to hear your perspective. Of course. Of course. Um, and this is kind of based on research. All right, so number one, Anthony, who falls in love faster, males or females? Hmm. Well, th this is a part of the problem here. Uh, what are we also defining love as, right? Because, you know, I, I, and this is, this is the thing. I think also this is one of the things I want to move away from is that, uh, you know, uh, gender and generalizing these sorts of terms, right? Like I think that both men and women can equally be the person to approach, can equally be the person to love. Now, do not skirt away from your question. I would actually surprisingly say men. You're right. Five credit points. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, well, tell me why you, you think so, and I'll tell you what. what uh, yeah, I mean, in my uh, personal opinion, and I do think it's because of, um, men are individuals who want to capture, who want to genuinely have, and, you know, they're in those who who need to have once they achieve something they want to hold on to it right this seems to be a male uh stereotypical tendency 
Okay. Also, they say that males are more visual, so they can see a beautiful mm. woman, and then maybe something about her voice or her look. He falls kind of in love with her. But a woman are more pragmatic. They want to know a lot more about a guy before they fall in love just with the physical side of things. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be a, a pattern. Okay, another question here, Anthony, so far you're doing good, is uh, who falls in love more frequently, males or females? Hmm. Well, I would personally, again, I think say for the same reasons, because I think men are willing to, you know, go after the, you know, this visual thing, this visual thing, this visual thing, or this interesting thing, this interesting thing, so on and so forth. So yes, if we're stereotyping, for the most part, I would say men. Incorrect. Interesting. <laughs> okay. This is where a lot of people fail, because hmm. basically... It's females who fall in love more frequently because a woman falls out of love faster. You know, when she's done with a guy, she's done. Mm. She might have a cry with her friends, uh, you know, have a chocolate party, and then go out and meet another guy. Right. But a guy, if he's really in love with her, he's going to linger. You ever see guys that call you at one in the morning, oh, honey, he's drunk. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I have, I have they friends. Keep, they keep pursuing the woman. Uh, have you seen that before? Yeah, yeah so I've seen men, that with friends. Either, if they yeah. really love her, you know, not just a sexual encounter, they actually pursue and continue, and they linger more. Women can make a cleaner break, they say. That, have you seen that before? No. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have seen it. Um, is uh, just one question about the are these self-reported when or when individuals you know uh, self-report that I fall in love like this or I fall in love like this? Interesting. Well, yeah, they do studies like yeah, it's very interesting. Hmm. But uh, it kind of goes with the the mindset, you know, in terms of you know falling out of love faster uh, for females so they can fall them more frequently. Okay, yeah. last one here. Now let's see if we can redeem yourself, Anthony. Uh, yes. These are kind of semi-trick questions. Uh, who, is, who is more romantic, males or females? Uh, by by the definition I use, given that it's a courtship definition, um, by default in Western societies, it would be men. However, women stereotypically in like media and culture have been stereotyped as preferring the symbols of romance, the chocolates, the flowers, hmm. um, the so on and so forth. So I think depending on how you define Before it. Before your answer, stick with your yeah. gut. Yeah, I think I think my gut does say women. Oh, but that's not your first answer. What was your first answer? No, no, no. my first answer was women. Oh, you were okay. I, but you started talking about men. I did. I because again, I do want to talk about both because you know <laughs> I'm very much someone who wants to get to the details okay. of things. And the answer thinking. is males. Now this is interesting. Yeah. And the reason why is to say males tend to be more idealistic. You know, mm -hmm. the term romance, like they see the beautiful woman from far away, they fall in love with us, you know, without really knowing who she is. Right. But a woman needs to know. Uh, what's his bank account look like? You know, what is, is he loyal? Is he faithful? How does he treat the, his grandma, his waiter? You know, does he want kids? So women have a lot more of a laundry list of events right? Uh, in terms of what they want. So they tend to be more pragmatic in terms of folly and love. And they right. take longer in that sense. Right. Whereas the man will see something that he desires and will go about a courtship uh, sort of gesture. You know, he'll like, you know, buy her flowers immediately or pay for an overpriced date or, you know, whatever right. it may Infatuation. be. Infatuation. Do you ever have that uh, crush in high school or someone that was unattainable or something? Do you, you, know, you know, honestly, I'm the type of person who's infatuated by a lot of things. I'm, I'm very much a uh, romantic um, in my mm -hmm. viewpoint, right? Like I, I can even be... A, infatuated with a lovely view, you know, and that sort of things. Right, but I'm saying know. in terms of a person, do you ever have a fatuation? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, included, of course. Okay, but you never really even maybe talk to them or develop a relationship, but you had this image about them that may not have been real. Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, being that uh, personally I try to be an inventive and creative person, uh, I can tend to do that with a lot of people, even those I do have uh, relationships with. You know, I very much am someone who... Uh, enjoys my flights of fancy, and I'm okay with that. You know, I right, think right. that knowing that about myself, I'm able to uh, regulate. I see. 
Uh, I mean, your book is very fascinating. It really talks about, it's got poetry in it, it's got philosophical maxims and, uh, you know, little uh, aphorisms and all. So, and you use songs. You have uh, Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It? <laughs> and, you know, she's talking about um, uh, basically the touch of your hand makes me, uh, my pulse react. So, that's kind of like the chemical attraction, right? The so-called infatuation. Yes. But then she talks about, uh, it's a secondhand emotion, my heart can be broken. Yes. So, can you explain that to us? How does that work in, in the real world? So, I mean, at least um, for me, um, that the, the context in which I, I believe I use it is in regards to relationships, that like relationships themselves do not have to do with love, that you can have loveless relationships. I mean, as pointed to earlier about the arranged marriages, not to say that all arranged marriages are inherently loveless. It's just to say that like, you know, many are not, or even many marriages or, you know, relationships made initially out of love have nothing to do with them. But in regards to, um, I guess, what Tina Turner's pointing to with love being the secondhand emotion, at least for me, I'd point to that like passion of chemicality is a weird way to put it. But, um, you know, that the that the chemical passion is the thing that comes foremost. And that's the emotion that then feeds into love and love does not necessarily have to do with passion. Now, I would firmly disagree with that sort of take. I think the two are inherently locked um in together so i do uh have a tendency and do sometimes enjoy taking things out of their context to use for creative purposes and but that being said yes um if we're going through the full lyrics of tina turner i inherently disagree because i think um in order that love is a byproduct of passion that you can't separate one from the other in the same way that you know fumes are a byproduct of driving your car, right? You can't just drive your car and, you know, just magically hope that there are going to be no fumes unless you drive an electric car, but that, you know, you cannot, that passion is always going to yield and result in some sort of love because love is just what uh, passion is pointed at. Love is the object that passion attaches onto. There is no just blind, nebulous, in the air, empty passion. Yeah, now you've heard of the Sternberg. He did the Triangular Theory of Love, where he talks about different elements that combine for different kind of love. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, for example, commitment only is the empty marriage you mentioned, also arranged marriages. Uh, mm -hmm. Intimacy only is liking, you know, like you have a good friend. Passion mm -hmm. only, it could be a one night stand, uh, you know, uh, friends with benefits or, you know, whatever you call it, flings. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, most people want to have a combination intimacy, passion, and uh, commitment. Yeah, uh, but you're not sure about the commitment side. You like the intimacy and the passion. You're saying, yeah. Well, I think actually that's the funny thing. Actually, I think um, you can very much have a fling with someone that you're not intimate with necessarily, right? Intimacy, like you don't you don't like them. I mean, it's not like you don't have a friendship. No, 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 no. no. Intimacy uh, in regards to physical intimacy, I thought, is what you were pointing to. Okay. But well, no, the way he defines it, intimacy is friendship. But that's different. Yeah. Yes, but in that sort of regard also, um, yeah, I think that can also be true, right? That you can have a short knowing relationship without right. even liking someone in the same way you can have a long, right. <laughs> you know, knowing relationship without liking right. someone. Right, but in Fling, the way you describe it, you want to have intimacy, which uh, Sternberg defines as friendship, you know, like emotional connection. You want to yeah. have the sexual element, mm -hmm. but then the commitment, maybe not, right, is what you're saying. Um. No, I think actually I, I, I mean long term commitment, like you know, like a hundred hundred yeah, years. Yeah, 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 years. Yeah. 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 So I yes, I very much detest um uh breaking outside of agreements in relationships. You know, again, even if you're in a you know polyamorous dynamic, um, if someone is not beholden 
to those agreements, then they are cheating. And I do not personally take kindly to that. I don't recommend it because what is the point of engaging with someone on certain terms um, without, you know, engaging on those terms in agreement? Because then you're just using and taking advantage of someone. And obviously, I don't want to be taking advantage of you used on if we're going the most basic golden rule route with this. And we can name, you know, a billion other um, sort of reasons. But I think uh, going back to the friendship stuff, um, for me, I actually hold friendship in a higher regard than love, right? Um, and I think when you can be friends with someone you love, that is even better. When you could be friends with someone you are married to, that's even, you know, better. There's this idea that, um, you know, friendships have to lack uh, the the physical imp- intimacy, the physical touch, and all, all that sort of stuff, and that's understandable. Like people don't necessarily want to conflate the two in certain situations, but I think in many situations the two should go hand in hand and actually may have uh, better results. You know, you want to be able to be in a relationship with someone that you can treat as a friend. Otherwise, okay, good. Now, Anthony, how would you find love has many different you know, viewpoints. And all. How would you define love romantically? Can you give me like one phrase and then we can go back on that a little bit? Later. Yeah, I think um, romantic love is just passion pointed at another person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Passion. Now, passion, is that sexual passion or could it be passion about just a joyfulness of being there with a the person? No, I think um, the, the best like type of passion I like to think about is when you know you come around the bend of a hike and you see a beautiful waterfall and you're like whoa like that is the sort of passion i'd like Like, to speak uh, to the most rapture rapturous i guess they call it right something yes yes beautiful like it it makes you feel joyful kind of thing yes excellent now um the other thing that's interesting you talk about the rose-colored lenses Mm -hmm. and you say that romantic passion fades and then you lose that you know they're no longer perfect as you thought and you find the flaws and that's when Mm -hmm. relationships go bad Yes. Uh, but there's actually a, a psychologist, you may have heard of Gottman. Have you heard of his yes. work? He does a lot of good work with marriage couples. He videotapes them. He looks at their uh, physiological signs. Uh, and what he found is actually that the couples that do best long-term, that are happy, maintain the rose-colored glasses. They actually see their mate in an unrealistically positive light. Like, you know, he's yes. funny, she's intelligent. Uh, and, you know, they actually do better. So isn't that good to have that if you can? Keep those rose-colored yeah, yeah, glasses. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm agreeing with, um, you know, that the tendency tends to be not that the rose-colored t- lenses stay on, it's that they sign contracts with the rose-colored lenses stay on, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's this idea that, like, it is good to have these rose-colored lenses. They're fun. Rose-colored lenses are cool. I mean, look right. at how Elton John can rock them. It's just more along the lines of that people make the contracts with the rose-colored lenses on, mm-hmm. and then they take them off, ah. and they're still in those same contracts. I think it is mm-hmm. best to keep the rose colored lenses on. I like the rose colored lenses. They look good. They look cool. So I'm completely, yeah, agreeing with that sort of- When you say contract, you're talking about marriage in a sense? Uh, And not necessarily marriage necessarily, because I think um, we're kind of in a day and age where uh, relationships are very uh, contractual, you know, um, and I think this is a good thing in many regards, like verbal consent is a very uh, good thing to enter our society and enter our lexicon. But nonetheless, it is very contractual. It's like, yes, I agree to this. Yes, I agree to this. I mean, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, this is like the naughtiest of all the naughty sex books. And even then you have like a literal physical contract going through all the details. And this was seen as like a symbol of like, 
you know, sexiness, right? Like if we would have made this movie 50 years ago, you know, they just would have started doing stuff and, you know. But you want people to be upfront and honest. Like, you know, in my seminars, I call it the dating masquerade. People have on a mask, Mm -hmm. you know, covers a true personality. They're trying to impress a person, but then the mask comes off and then you're often incompatible and not happy. Yeah. So you're saying take off the mask initially and then do the contract or whatever it is you're talking about. Yes, yes, yes. I, yes, that, that's a complete agreement, right? That, that one should be upfront with themselves. But what tends to, I think, happen is that we are in a day and age where people are in a contractual deals, right? They may, you know, they may date someone for, you know, uh, aesthetic reasons to look good on Instagram. I mean, there's this whole sort of trend where it's like uh, people like sort of like shadow reveal they're like boyfriends or girlfriends and like you know they you know they try to use other people as like you know objects and symbols to um you know get something out and i think it's better to just be open and honest with ourselves so that way when we are coming to these sort of uh longer term agreements we are coming as ourselves not as a uh sign that we have uh you know worn i see now in terms of uh, generational aspects i don't know if you're a millennial or what your range is but uh, you say as they get people get older, they may change perhaps the perception. Maybe younger mm-hmm. they want flings, maybe older they want companionship, maybe they want whatever it is, family, you know, kids, uh, what they call legacy, right? Do you see that mm-hmm. changing in people's lives uh, as they get older? Do they maybe change some of their uh, you know, priorities? Yeah, I mean, I guess to give some context. So uh, I was born in 97. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, I'm 25. So I'm oh, okay. I kind so of... You're the generation Y or something? Or what I really don't care number wise i think for me personally like i'm in just the as the person i am i you know i'm someone who's very able to i've referenced like instagram a couple of times here but simultaneously like you know i will read like a lot of nietzsche you know aristotle you're like an old soul in in some ways they call you yeah but i'm i i i kind of try my best to straddle right like i want to know what everyone's kind of up to and i think all the lexicons important you're gonna be flinging uh, at 50 years of age you think I think so too. Um, but I think that's a personal thing, right? So, I mean, yes, there may be generational tendencies, but I think these generational tendencies weren't explored in honesty, right? Because I think the uh, expectation um, and the automatic expectation was to have these long-term monogamous arrangements. And I think um, with the invention of birth control, especially, I mean, this has been a thing for a while, but you know, especially with that, we have been put in a liberating sort of regard where, yes, there are still STDs and obviously these things need to be tracked. But for the most part, in terms of, you know, having that risk of, you know, uh, formulating a child and having that responsibility, we have a more honest means to explore what we actually want uh, out of our relationships. And it's no coincidence that the sexual revolution coincided very closely with um, the invention of, of birth control. Um so it's just to say that I think we haven't taken advantage of this exploration yet. And a lot of people still assume the automatics, but I think before we can answer what we should do, um, you know, as a generation, I think it's important for individuals to answer for themselves. And then it, once we realize the conclusions that individuals are coming up with collectively, then we can, you know, explore the implications and see where we want to go. But as of right now, I think the, automatic implication is still dominant. I think we are still behaving uh, too much like albatrosses as opposed to the uh, mammalian species that we are. You're quite a very thought-spoken uh, uh, gentleman, uh, you are. Uh, the way you um, expound things. Philosophically, I can see. Uh, which is kind of cool. But you're also kind of a cool guy. I can see you're kind of easygoing in some ways. 
Thank you. you, like thank to, you. You'd like to enjoy life, right? Oh, I uh, try my best. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I'm, I'm thinking about is uh, you talk about familiarity versus un, uh, unfamiliarity. You said that's mm-hmm. more exciting, you know, the passion, you know, getting to know the person, you don't know who they are. We said once familiarity sets in, people, I guess, become bored and the marriages and all that stuff ends. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are people, I don't know if you know about the personality type, Jungian types, Myers-Briggs, are, they're what we call security mm-hmm. seeker types that actually like comfort, they like predictability, stability. For them, actually, that's wonderful. You know, they have mm-hmm. the nine to five, you know, meal at a certain time, make love a certain way. So do you see that in terms of differences and personality types in terms of what yeah, I, they like? Yeah, I think I account for it. I can't remember what I um what term I use to account for it, but um oh they they like their corners, right? I think there are individuals out there who like their corners. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine. But I think the problem is is that too many people are getting shoved in their corners and are are just accepting familiarity. I think the majority tendency is um, a lot more open-ended than society gives credit for. I think a lot more people are being shoved into those corners than actually want them. Of course, that type exists, and that's good on them. But they think even that person that's shoved into the corner should still be passionate about the things that are in their corner. And I and you see a lot of people that are corner people also having this like questioning that too at the same time. So I think the the main issue at hand. And I and this might sound annoying to say because of you know how many you know German idealists use it, but the whole authenticity, authenticity, and and, and it's not that that's not necessarily wrong, but it it it's more so if people can realize their true comfortability. And I think given that we're in a day and age where there's a lot of conflicting messages, like oh you gotta do this, but you also gotta do that. You have to be this, and you have to be this, you know. And just the amount of messages are also growing. I think people aren't as good as taking the time to sit back and settle to see what they want. And for me, I think the main reason I wrote this thing is not to necessarily, um, you know, uh, destroy the nuclear family or anything mm-hmm. of that sort. It's just to explore another option for those who may think they have to do the nuclear family, but may not have to, you know, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, or et cetera, other things. Right. You're saying. So you're kind of out of the box thinker exploring other avenues and, Giving people the options, I guess, is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other thing is interesting is that the idea of unconditional love has got many terms: agape, uh, karuna, which uh, is compassion, or batki, uh, love. Uh, you know, often you know you think of a higher power, you know, nature, God, and so forth that infuses you with that. Now, mm-hmm. we see that we see unconditional love many times with um, a parent and a young child. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, they're wonderful. Of course, when they get to be teenagers, the things may change, <laughs> right? <laughs> And then a human and a dog, right, or animal, right? You see the unconditional love. But then adult relationships, we don't see it as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the so-called perfect love, the spiritual side. So what's your take on that? Is there unconditional love in human adults or in, in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, my this is my mom's least favorite section of this work. <laughs> Does um, she believe in that or no? No, she very much disagrees. She thinks unconditional love is a thing where mm-hmm. I don't think it can exist because I think all love has to exist within conditions. And I mean, the most basic condition is one existence. So like love exists within, you know, the laws of like the cosmos, et cetera, et cetera. Then love obviously exists in a time and place and love exists directed towards uh, a particular uh, other, you know. So I think love always exists in conditions, right? The the condition of a mother's love towards their kids is largely due to the fact that they are her kids. 
that doesn't mean that that mother is incapable of loving other people. I mean, I'm someone who, you know, plans on when I get older to adopt. That's that's like, you know, that I don't want to have my own, but I do want to adopt. So I, I'm not saying that love cannot be directed at something that is not your own. But nonetheless, like the condition that I will love my adopted kids is largely the fact that they are my adopted kids and not anyone else's. So I don't. So I think, you know, you can't prevent but being in conditions. There's no such thing as unconditioned. It's that all things are conditional. Hmm. How about the thing that no matter what you do, they still love you. Does mm -hmm. your dog still love you no matter what you do? So if we're talking about endless love, I think that is possible, but very difficult, right? So I, I, right. So I do think it's possible to have this unending passion, but it has to be like re-sparked. So uh, I'm for adult human relationships, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's true for, I think like for dogs, adults, humans, hmm. et cetera, right? It's just one of those things where um, a good example of this is uh, in order to do these sorts of things, it's like you have to make you have to keep on cooling wax as you're burning wax to keep a candle going and have like the wick going. So I guess the, it's a weird metaphor of like you have this endless wick, but in order to keep it burning, you have to keep on creating wax to go around it, go around it. And you have to be a constant wax maker around you have to get, keep it. Give me your dog a bone. Otherwise he won't love you. <laughs> it's not about giving a bone necessarily. So I'm or, talking about the individual and how they keep it up for themselves. Right. I don't think anyone can make anyone else fall in love with them. I think that's a, a ridiculous notion. I think you're the only one that can control your own sort of love. Hmm. So I, I think, but in order to do these sorts of things, right. Um, you have to keep the, keep it going. And hmm. I think, Ultimately, uh, endless love, I think, is pretty much, I mean, a, a, a pretty much a practical impossibility. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, even when you're driving or taking a shower, you're not focused on the passion you have towards somebody else. So I think more accurately, it's better to think of love as like a matchbox and just be ready to, you know, light the match when you need to. You just cost all the uh, millions of dollars for all the romantic writers, right? All the songs, <laughs> all the music <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Well, I love referencing uh, music in this book a lot. I think yes. I reference probably more music than anything else. Because um, yeah. I think, oddly enough, that lyricists are the most underrated of poets, certainly. And they may be underrated psychologists in a phenomenological sense. Like, they're very much able to touch upon the experience of things. Like a phenomenological psychology, of course, not a psychiatry by any means. I'm not going to get my psychiatry from iron and wine. But, okay. I, you know, I you can... You can understand the passion and experience right. of, you know, of love through a lot of songwriting. So you have a lot of interesting uh, paradigms and paradoxes and reversals. I think mm -hmm. one of your other works, I was looking a little bit at it, you told, uh, talk about the assumption of death. Mm -hmm. We assume that we're going to die. And by thinking you're immortal, that can actually change things. It's a certain thing. So I'm wondering if you're doing the same thing. A assumption of love is that most people assume that love is a component. And it doesn't have to be. Is that kind of where you're going with this? Yeah, yeah. You, you caught on that very well. Yeah, because I I like to uh, go a little harder with Nietzsche. Nietzsche talked about doing philosophy with a hammer. And I think about doing it more with a sledgehammer because something Nietzsche didn't account for is that there's different types of hammers, right? You, you know, you have your hammers that are better for building. But for me, I'm more of a uh, sledgehammer type of philosopher where I want to smash assumptions. And I don't want to build necessarily anything in their place. It's just more along the lines of, Okay, now that you have the rubble, what are you going to do, you know, as an individual? And so for me, it's like, you know, I just want to, to knock some holes in the walls of love and see if people still want to keep the their structures or if they want to finish the job uh, for themselves. Mm. 
Yeah, you said something like um, most people say life is short and love is eternal, but you're saying love can be short and life is eternal. Yes. So reversing <laughs> that. But then I'm thinking, though, a lot of people, when they think of um, immortality, you talk about a legacy. And mm -hmm. love could be considered a legacy, you know, the love you have for your people you leave behind, the love you invest in your work. So wouldn't that make you immortal itself? So in a sense, death and love are connected. Yeah, yeah. I, I think th there's some uh, validity to that for sure. But I think the um, the love can often be the things you do over that span of immortality. So for example, like um, Dostoevsky is immortal for his works, but his works are only so long, right? In the sense that each work that he ever produced is a passion in of itself. And the works themselves are not immortal. It is, you know, in terms of their length. And the passion is certainly not immortal. You know, the passion he had of writing those works, the the immortality is the way they, that passion has lasted and, you know, has has kept itself carrying over and has granted new passion to others. You know, I mean, right. there's a lot of Dostoevsky nerds out there uh, for sure, for good reason. You're a little bit like Khalid Gibran. Have you heard of him before? No, I actually have not. Uh, Tamaris Lebanese poet. At 18, he was writing about eternal love. You know, he never experienced it, but he was mm -hmm. able to channel somehow all these wonderful uh you know, mature things, you know. Uh, was he a birth. Sufi? Uh, he may have studied that. I mean, that's from the East, you know. Lebanon. Yeah, I'm a big fan of a lot of the Sufi writers. Um, you know, I, I have Rumi referenced a lot in Rumi, my work. Yeah. Rumi yes. is all about that. Now, you do have some interesting points here. You talk about a long marriage equals long conversation, not necessarily long love. Mm. And it's true, like, if a passion does fade, the sexual passion, then what you have is a companion, right? Someone you talk to. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you said you can't tolerate that anymore, and that could be a divorce. Mm. So, in your mind, if you were to be a dating coach, would you advise find someone you really can talk good with? Is that what? Oh, be uh, oh, that would be the first and foremost thing, and I'd emphasize that at the beginning and the end. And the not middle. sexual passion. I mean, no, no. I think conversation is more important. Okay. Yeah, so they may not be physically attractive as you like, but they have great conversation. You would go with that. Yes, right. I think that's more important. I mean, for some people, I think you can't um, eliminate the um, the sexual aspect. For some, for for me personally, like I. Um, it's not the foremost thing for me, you know, but for other people, yeah, it certainly is. And that can't be eliminated, but I would tell them it's like, okay, don't be with someone that you are just physically intimate with. Like right. you have to be able to have a conversation with the individual because even, um, a person that you're just physical with, you're going to spend more time talking to them. There's a reason why the term pillow talk exists, you know, and then also given that, um, you want to be able to communicate with someone um, that you're physical with and the person you can communicate that you're physical with, you're going to have better intimacy with because each is going to be able to say what they truly want out of those um, moments of physical intimacy a lot better. Right. Now, you know, some of the most popular shows today, you may have seen the early shows like Love is Blind, where you don't even see the person <laughs> that you get engaged, or even Married at First Sight, where you get married and then you take off the mask and see them. But mm -hmm. only 20% or 10% of them make it. What do you think of that? Is that a good social experiment? Or not. No, um, but I think that's mo mostly due to the um, the phoniness of it. It, it. It's sort of a Disney problem where it creates right. a reality that does not actually correspond. Mm -hmm. It's simply just a, a simulation. So it's it's the Bulger problem of of yes, the simulation does affect our reality, but the pure simulation you have, the more detached it is from that reality until. Right until it's able to feed in properly. So it's that issue of that everything's too staged and too, like, there's producers, there's Hammers cameras. Like, yeah. So all that kind yeah. of uh, takes away the rollout, you think, or whatever they have or the real passion from it? Yeah, I I, I think um, a better example is in real life. Most people talk about meeting um, 
their significant other by happenstance, right? Like they weren't looking for anything. It just kind of came to them, right? And anyone who has any romantic experience that has a friend who doesn't have a lot of romantic experience but really wants a partner, the best advice you can give them is just be yourself, go out into the world, put yourself out there, and don't even think about it. Because most times when you meet someone of significance to you, it'll be by happenstance. Exactly. Now, some of the, uh, people might say that some of the stuff is nihilistic or even cynical, some of your takes. But I do see a lot of positive, I mean, I consider positive elements as well. Like you say, love is action, uh, not necessarily feeling, and it doesn't come for those who wait. So there are people that are very passive and, oh, hopefully I'll find someone that, you know, they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also love can also be giving love to others in a positive, like on service, helping people that need help. Do you talk about those kind of things? Um, yeah. Helping the, the you know, deserves. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, going back very quickly, I, you know, I, I do include the putting oneself out there when love comes by happenstance, because, you know, you can't just like sit in your room and hope for these things to come. And I think th- that passion is a good directedness, you know, um, you know, and, and that passion could be put towards one's, you know, music, one's care for their, uh, you know, family, so on and so forth, because you need those sparks to even get to the point of companionship you know passion is the practice of companionship right for someone to be able to have um you know a long relationship or at least i think a good one i think is is better for them to practice in the shorter term right in the same way that when you practice for you know a basketball game right like when you know players are doing their uh, their practice games they're not playing a full game of practice right they're doing spurts and jolts of it to see what the feeling is like and then, you know, they do other exercises um, in between. So myself, in terms of being nihilistic and pessimistic, um, you know, I, I, I very much am absurdist in my philosophy, which is basically um, I like to put Camus' understanding of absurdism as meaning of life agnosticism. Mm. So I have a lot of moments where um, as a result of this, I can be very optimistic. I could be like smiling Sisyphus or... Mm. Or I could be like, oh, God, I'm Sisyphus and I'm pushing a boulder. So, you know, so I, I, I think it's good to straddle those two modes. And I okay. think that Cause, cause, uh, you wrote something. I don't know if you're being sarcastically funny or if you mean it. You say hopeless romantics are hopeful romantics. They hope for tender moments and sweet experiences. That sounds like a very sweet thing to say. Is that coming from you? No, no sarcasm. I think that's that's honest. You, you I feel it. OK, so that's. Oh, yeah. Thing. That's almost like a feeler saying that, you know. Oh yeah, I'm very much a feeler, and uh, I'm very, I'm very emotionally driven. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write poetry if it were uh, otherwise. Okay, so that is a, a very hopeful statement, you know, about love, basically. So there's an mm-hmm. optimistic statement. Uh, through sexual attraction, love for another, otherness can emerge. Uh, they become them. But then another part of the book, you say, uh, even if I have oneness in union, uh, that would be horrible because it would destroy the otherness in the other person. They would not be that otherness. There would be a different otherness. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't there be a better otherness, perhaps, or a growth otherness if that happens? No, because um, I think the problem that a lot of people do is they try to make others themselves, and they destroy something of the other person, right? Where it's, uh, it, I'm reading uh, uh, Shakespeare's uh, uh, play uh, Julius Caesar right now, and Brutus's wife talks about like, "Come on, we're one, we're merged together." Like, get, confide in you know, and, and it's one of those things where it's like. No, like each mm-hmm. is their own independent person, and that's what makes them beautiful. And I think oftentimes in relationships where there's this attempt at unity removes the beauty. So as I mentioned the Sufis earlier, as much as I appreciate them, um, I think they're trying to, you know, merge everything together often removes the beauty of individual things put um aside. And I think, 
you know, it's good to work with someone. It's good to be like in team and unison. So I'm not saying like, oh, that's right. To be completely independent of your partners. It's just more to say that, like, make sure that they preserve the things of themselves that made you passionate about them in the first place and preserve the things that you are passionate about yourself that I'm sure were the reason that they were passionate. Right, so you don't lose yourself you. and the person like that's called codependency, right? That you kind of yes. like tried to change that person and you lose your, your own identity. Yes. I, you do have a, an interesting story about the warrior King. Uh, he says, if I conquer cities, I'll be happy. And then he meets a guy lying naked on the road who is actually smiling. And he said, why is that? He says, I don't need to conquer the stars because I just watch them shine. And that's beautiful. Yeah. So just uh, enjoying life, gratitude. Is that kind of what you're saying there? And just being in the moment. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the, um, you know, in, in that sort of regard, I think it just comes down to also a thing we had earlier that the um, the things that we often can most uh, appreciate and most have passion for are those things we come across and don't need to necessarily go after and get. And it's also a very anti-conquering message of, you know, making things one own one's own when they're not, because, you know, I think... Um, you know, the naked man at the end, he's also, you know, he's, he, he's at himself, right? He's just completely, you know, just presenting himself as himself where, you know, um, and just letting himself be within himself. Whereas the other person is, you know, he, he's living up to an ambition because there are, there are multiple Kings. There's the warrior King who's the son of a mountain King who also is a conqueror. So there's this, you know, this, there's this artifice, artifice, sorry, of tradition also that's uh, included in, which clearly the guy who's naked lying in the stars, I, I don't think he comes from a long line of naked people who lied laking the stars. I think it's just something that this individual genuinely enjoyed. Right. Well, they said Diogenes was um, looking at something, and then Alexander the Great says, I'll give you anything you want. He says, well, just move a little bit out of my way so I can enjoy the view. Kind yeah. Of thing. So, and you're enjoying the, the beautifulness of the moment. Now, the other thing is um, you talk about uh, you can't force love. And the, if you recall the Song of Songs, you know, Solomon talked about, you, you know, you, you can't uh, you make love uh, come to you, right? You have to let it come when it comes. It's a very mm -hmm. powerful force like that that can sweep you away. Do you also yes, agree yes. with that part of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Um, also, uh, one of my favorite works, if not my favorite work of the Bible, is Ecclesiastes, which is also hmm. credited to Solomon. And it has those same sorts of, you know, vibes where, you know, life can sweep you at any moment. And, you know, I think love is a large aspect of life that can sweep you, but so can friendship, so can happiness, so can sadness. You know, it's not to say that you don't have free will in these sort of situations, but I think a lot of these situations are very compatibilist where there are factors that you cannot control and factors that you can control. But unfortunately, I think one that you cannot control is passion. You know, it's hard, you know, people stumble upon their passions. They don't just like decide one day, oh, I'm going to be passionate about NASCAR racing. Like this just not something that I don't think uh, people can decide for themselves. They come across it. Mm -hmm. Well, you also say uh, love is fleeting, beautiful and intense. Mm -hmm. uh, but how about the idea that love is also a deep understanding of another, which takes time and, you know, is a kind of a gradual, you know, depth of understanding the person. Do you see that as being a part of love is to no, I, connect with that person? No, no, I see that as the realm of care and companionship. Mm. Um is, is when you get deep into it. So um, I think passion is when you have that like initial sort of knowledge, right? So um, if I'm passionate about um, hiking, right, the, the people who are typically passionate about hiking aren't the expert hikers. By no means am I an, an expert hiker. I'm passionate about it. I love to do, you know, 16 mile hikes and that sort of stuff, but by no means 
could I competitively hike? By no means could I do, you know, the Arizona Trail or the Appalachian Trail. So it, it's more along the lines of that I am passionate in the sense that I am past the point of being a novice. I could, you know, say that I'm an amateur, but by no means am I a, a professional at having a deep understanding of things. And I think um, the, the realm of love is not where you have the uh, the deep understanding. I think the lo- realm of love is the springboard that either launches you into that realm of care and companionship, or it's when you just jump off the ship because a lot of people do that. They get really passionate about something for a couple of months. And then they realize that they, when the love goes away, they're like, eh, maybe I'm not so interested in model trains or whatever it may be. So you're equating love, uh, kind of a passion. You're saying the the excitement, the the joy and all that. Is that what you're kind of saying? And the other stuff, caring is more of a softer, deeper kind of thing uh, over time. Yes, that flows with it, but you don't call that love per se. You you call it uh, something else, a caring. Yes, I, I call it care or companionship. Yes, interesting. Yeah, because one of my students was a woman from um, India, I believe, and she was middle aged, and she says I had an arranged marriage. I was very happy uh, with the arranged marriage, and then my my husband died. But one thing that my husband told me is when he was young, his mother said this: If you want to make love with one woman, make love with many women. But if you want to make love with many women, make love with one woman. Yes. I thought, what does that mean? Well, the idea that you make love with many women, but you're picking the kind of the same type that you like. So it's kind of the same person. You don't really get to know them. Uh, mm-hmm. You could call it flings. But if you have, make love with one woman many times, you go deep within the layers of who that is, and she can be multiple people. Yeah. But how would you classify that? Because that may go a little bit against the fling idea. Well, yeah, but I, but I think that's part of uh, – that. no, I think it's exactly – I think you you get passionate about the otherness of somebody else. So like the the – so you, that's why I said earlier you can have a fling with like a marriage or uh, even one person. So it's like keeping it exciting, like maybe you know going somewhere different or do something different. But it's even also appreciating the otherness of somebody, right? Like one of the things that you can do is like if you sustain passion, you can learn something about somebody else. I mean, there's that song, the "Do you like pina coladas?" and they both find out at the end that oh yeah, we like pina coladas and like being in caves and stuff. Like obviously that song's awful because both are trying to cheat at each other. But mm-hmm. the point being, it's a so end idea where both figure out something other about the other. Right. And I think we didn't know that we have this in common, but we found out in this uh, strange way. Yes. So you're saying that's the part of the excitement is to keep learning more about the person. Yes, 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 yes. And that is passion or is that love or is that? I character? think it's definitely passion and love. Yes. Okay, good. Interesting. Now, the other thing that you talk about is self-love, you know, how in love university, we say love yourself, others in the higher nature. So mm-hmm. here we talk about self-love and you said that self-love, um, may not be good because it re- it it doesn't allow for selfhood and it replaces self-care. Can you define that? Oh, one? that's too soft. No, no, no. I, I think oh. uh I self-love is a uh a, an evil in a sense if we're gonna, if if we call can call anything an evil in the hmm. sense of towards oneself, right? Um I think the issue with self-love is that it others oneself hmm. and it creates an object to be analyzed and to be corrected but does not actually assist oneself. So um, the idea is like, philosophical. Put it down to layman terms. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So when I self-love, I don't actually direct it at myself. I create a a figure of myself, an imagination of myself, mm-hmm. and I create an ideal of myself and I direct my energy towards that as opposed to myself. I think that's the the problem that occurs in self-love. Mm. Well, let's break it down. Uh, self-care is basically I mean, taking a massage or exercising, stuff like that, and eating healthy, is that self-care in your mind? Um, I think self-care can 
A respiratory practice, meditation. I think self, yeah, those were the other good examples. I think self-care is actual examination. So the difference between, um, I think, self-love and self-care is self-care is looking at yourself and seeing um, the actual cuts you have on yourself and like actually bandaging yourself and et cetera. Hmm. Whereas um, self-love would be how do how does this hypothetical individual put themselves in situations where they will avoid the cuts and the bandages and the bleeding? And it's like, no, because, uh, you know, ultimately when we get down to it, you have to assess yourself in the conditions that you're actually in Hmm. and self-love creates an imaginary version of you. That is not actually the case that gets all the good feelings and all the, you know, positive stuff directed onto it and leaves the negative shell of yourself. Whereas mm. in self-care, you can look at yourself for as you actually are mm. the goods, the the perceived goods, bads. And is uh, it like an over, you know, like say the overprotective mother that coddles the kid too much and doesn't let them explore and maybe fall and, you know, learn from that. And they did studies on that. Goldman, you've made, have you heard of Emotional Intelligence, the book? And yes, all that? yes. So he has studies on that, that um, usually the kids that are shy and timid are the ones that have the overprotective mothers because they never had a chance to go and explore the environment and fall and learn from that. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of what you're saying about self-love? Is not really letting yourself experience even the problems of life and then solve them? Or even your I own mean, flaws, as you said. Yeah, that doesn't hurt. But it, it it's more along the lines that um, I think self-love is closer to not um, narcissistic that's a whole different thing we're not talking about that right Uh, aggrandizement kind of thing no actually we are talking about something close to that it's it's actually more of the kohut issue than it is um than the issue of the um you know the overprotecting mother because it's more in self-love you create a photoshop of yourself right you you create this like version of yourself that you wish to be and wish to come to be like right like that's what self-love tends to do because it creates an otherness, right? It others yourself and creates a filtered uh, version of yourself, whereas in self-care is actual pointed assessment at yourself, right? If love is passion directed at something other, if you then self-love, then you then tend to other yourself and create yourself as something else to be passionate over. And when we have passion for things, we also limit their capacities because there's only so much information you can gather in that initial, ooh, Ah, uh, you know, sort of uh, moment. Well, Anthony, you're a fascinating uh, gentleman, and there's a lot here that I'm learning. And um, I think you're channeling. I mean, I don't know if you believe in the world of channeling or you know <laughs> some higher information. Do you believe in a spiritual nature? Do you have any paths that you follow? So I'm personally um, agnostic. Um, I've had a lot of uh, uh, religiosity in my background. Catholic I've also people studied. Yeah. yeah, Catholic, of course, yeah. being yeah. Cuban, Female's but. Right. I've also helped assist uh, uh, the introduction to world religions class at the University of New Mexico. Um, so, I, you know, I've done religious scholarship. But right. for me, uh, I'm neither for nor against religiosity or spirituality. It's just for me personally, I kind of am uh, quite skeptical, but not against. Right. But a lot of people say that the real basis of religion and spirituality is this thing called love, but from a higher nature, you know, loving others, uh, helping others. Now, given all the stuff you've written, is there a space for that in you in terms of being compassionate, being empathetic, uh, and giving loving energy to others? Yeah, I think um, I think part of my work is to assist with that because I think the problem that a lot of people have is that they feel they can't love unless they're all in, right? This idea that like, oh, in order to love, I have to be all in. And I think as I understand it, it's that low, love does not have to be 
an all in. I mean, the, my favorite- helping a homeless person. I mean, not just romantic, but mm-hmm. helping you know somebody that needs help. Your neighbor is crying, and you listen to the neighbor for an hour, mm-hmm. even though you're busy. Is, yeah, you that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, of course. I think like because I think the problem is that a lot of people get caught up is like why help the neighbor in the first place if I can't like fix the neighbor's problems. Why help out this one homeless guy if I can't solve homelessness? I think a lot of people get caught up in that trap. And what I'm offering more so is that, no, like, it is okay to do things on a smaller scale. Micro compassion, shall we say, like the elements Mm -hmm. of it. Yes. And that would be just a little step toward, do you believe in society as a whole, be loving or caring to each other? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm skeptical of, of certain aspects of, of, you know, sort of herd ideas of like compassion mm-hmm. and equality and et cetera. But, you know, ultimately, you know, my tendencies do still um, lean towards um, at least a general kumbaya in a sense, not necessarily, uh, you know, that, that, you know, that we're all going to be equals or that, you know, that, that there is no room for, you know, violence or any, you know, there's, you know, there may be room for certain things that aren't necessarily within the Christian morality, but nonetheless, I think a general sense of care and compassion, I personally view as positives because, um, you know, we've kind of all been thrown into life experience and we're all kind of trying to figure stuff out. And, you know, I think ultimately there is reasonable reason to not be uh to put it simply a dick to others so so Anthony, are you an infp on the myers-briggs by any chance have you ever taken that test no i am an en uh uh entp oh really okay so the thinking but you said you're a feeler is that yes. come out underlying the, the thinking because you said uh, yes. you're a key is that yes 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 it, it, it comes out um yeah, so I'm very extroverted. I, I very much an energized. So, so I call it social philosopher is what I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, if you're the F, you know, but you're not. You're saying you're more the ENTP. T. Yeah. So you're more of a logical thinking uh, person. Uh, you're saying surprisingly, yeah. Even though mm-hmm. um, I'm awful at symbolic logic and syllogistic thinking, uh, mm-hmm. nonetheless, uh, this is where my Myers Briggs uh, right. takes me. So I wrote about love types on incompatibility you know, and, and the Myers Briggs. So I call it the innovator, the ENTP. Mm-hmm. So they can have great in- ideas, inventions. They can go bankrupt or make a million the next day or something like that. <laughs> Does that sound yeah. like you? Are you kind of like, uh, for like, other reasons? But yes, uh, yes, included the yes, including the 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 whole personality yeah. thing. Yes. And what are you excited about, uh, Anthony? Where can people hear more about you? Are there any projects you're working on, or what, what's uh, what's going on with you? Yeah, I mean, as of right now, um, I'm right now focusing on the idea of what allows something to be complete versus incomplete. And I'm doing that towards uh, natural completionism. So, you know, this tendency that people have to go to every national park. So I really want to use that as a springboard to critique uh, notions of completionism and to understand what makes something complete and incomplete. But that project, I think, is going to be uh, slower going and I'm going to format it very differently. So it's a book. You're writing a book about that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm someone who, you know, I publish random poems and, you know, essays all the time. But yeah, for me personally, I, I mean, the next, uh, you know, big project uh, right now that I have is uh, moving with my partner to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and oh, okay. uh, I'll be teaching composition one class, ah, a class at Oklahoma State for a bit, and we'll okay. see what happens from there. 
Okay. You don't know if it's a fling yet. It could be something longer or you don't know. It could be. And I, and you know, uh, uh, the fact that, uh, <laughs> that they're, that they're coming with me to Oklahoma. <laughs> is, is, okay, talk uh, about it. They might get mad at you or something. No, 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 no. Okay, we, no, we're, we're very, we're very chill in these cool with it? Okay. sorts of, yeah, we, we have a very, uh, yeah, a very strong trust in each other. And so I, philosophy you know, is your thing, right? You got the masters, you want to be mm-hmm. a teacher, professor, stuff like that, write books and all that. Yeah. I, I think on my own hand, I don't know if I'm going to do a doctorate in philosophy. As of right now, um, I'm in a program for a creative writing MFA. So for me in general, I more want to be a academic of the humanities and write within the humanities as a broader subject. So, um, you know, I don't know necessarily if I'm going to shift away from the creative writing MFA towards another aspect of the humanities, but nonetheless, I am very uh humanities based because i'm very interested in the manner and approach at which humanity approaches itself and uh, perceives itself and you know matters of the philosophy like made easy right for the average person or made interesting i guess it would be nice uh, you know i don't know if i make it easy or difficult i think i or interesting at least do, or fun, or fun i think i could do either i'm in this weird space mm-hmm. where i have these aphorisms and sections that are very pop philosophy right. and then i have these other very technical yeah. moments so a little Tupac I a, over here a little Descartes over there right or something yes like i like that yeah more <laughs> for me it would be more kendrick lamar and nietzsche but yes oh, there you go that, i like okay. yeah those are those would be my what's your, uh, that would what's your my, website uh and where people get a hold of your books and things like that um, yeah so uh my stuff can be found on uh amazon uh i can also uh be most frequently seen on uh medium and yeah, I don't really have a website. I'm not very much a social media person, but yeah, you could find uh, both my works on Amazon by their title. Um, that would be The Assumption of Death and Flings on Flings. And then uh, I publish on Medium quite often under my uh, full name, which is Anthony David Vernon. Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the show, Anthony. I'd love to have you back. Wonderful talk to you. Even talk about current events. I can say I can ask you certain things, right, <laughs> about current events. And what do you oh, think? Oh yeah, sure, sure. I, I I hope to I hope to be young enough to be contributing to current events. I hope philosophical point of view, right, or something. Yeah, don't have too many gray hairs for that. Hopefully. Exactly. All right, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. This is Dr. Alex Avila. I hope to have Anthony back again, and we'll continue with uh, Love University, loving yourself, others in a higher nature. We learned some interesting things, and we're going to keep growing and improving. Uh, it's time to put away your notebooks, your iPads, your phones. Love University is now dismissed. Dr. Avila. That was a fascinating interview with a young man uh, that talked a lot about philosophy, Anthony David Vernon, but also in a very practical way. Now, he was a little bit, you could say, almost cynical, um, nihilistic in a certain way, but also underlying there's a lot of hope there as well. I think uh, he's more compassionate than he's letting on, perhaps, uh, more loving, uh, as we define it. But it is good to question, you know, not just take love as a sugar-coated thing that we read in, in magazines or newspapers, or we say, I love you, but really go deeper. What does it really mean? Is it a deep understanding of another? Is it caring? Is it compassion? Is it empathy? There are many components, sexual, romantic components, uh, companionship components. But the key is to discover who you are inside, your authenticity, to love yourself in an authentic way, like uh, Anthony was saying. Uh, take care of yourself, but also love others and extend that love energy outward. And I do believe in love without expectations, uh, where you give it out, it comes back many fold, and it really helps you become the best you can be. So if you want to be on, on a future show, or if you comment on today's show, you can reach us at 310-226-8090. Write to us at loveuniversallylove at gmail.com. Visit us at loveuniversally.love. You can download the podcast on Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. You can like us and follow us 
on Facebook and Instagram at Love Letter You Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Love Letter You Podcast. Until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila. Put away your notebooks, your iPads, your phones. Class is now dismissed.